Welcome to 1867 and All That, Episode 24, Making Sense of It All. This is it, Episode 24, the final episode of Season 1. Apologies for the one-week hiatus last week. I took the whole 1867 clan on a backcountry kayaking trip, and I, I wasn't happy with where I was with this episode before I left, so I decided to wait a week to post it. It is the, the last episode, after all. Uh, the waters were still, and the weather was incredibly warm, and I confess I didn't think at all about responsible government for several days. But we're back now. The last time you heard from me here, we tracked the fallout from the Rebellion Losses Bill as the Canadas, and Montreal especially, descended into temporary chaos at the Lafontaine-Baldwin government's plans to pay back lower Canadians the costs of the losses from the rebellion of over a decade earlier. The Rebellion Losses Bill controversy showed that very little had changed since the rebellions, on the one hand, and on the other, that everything had changed. The tense divisions between the Canadas and between Canadians remained. So too did anger over questions of loyalty, who was loyal and who was a rebel. And a fraught animosity between ethnic and religious groups could also quickly heighten tensions too. So that's what I mean by very little had changed in the Canadas. And yet, the government of the day was controlled by reformers, and Louis Lafontaine was essentially the prime minister. When his government decided on a matter of public policy, the Rebellion Losses Bill, the rest of the colony's executive, its cabinet, all made up of Lafontaine's supporters, agreed and set that policy in motion. The government controlled a majority in the assembly, and they pushed through the bill. And what's more, the British-appointed governor, Lord Elgin, allowed it all to happen. He didn't interfere. Even in the midst of incredible pressure to go against the democratically elected government of the day, even under violent threat to his own life, Elgin stood firm. For all its unpopularity amongst a large segment of the population, and even amongst the group who would normally have expected to have had their way and have had the ear of the colonial government, the Rebellion Losses Bill became the law of the land. It was an astounding and at the same time strife-riven victory for responsible government and the kind of Westminster-style parliamentary democracy that British North Americans were only just beginning to enjoy. This week, we try to make sense of what just happened. What exactly changed under responsible government? How did the new system differ, or not, from what came before? Also. Why did responsible government come when it did at the end of the 1840s? Historians always have a hard time explaining causation, the why question, because unlike scientists, we can't run controlled experiments. So we need to first off admit this limitation, admit that we are offering plausible causal explanations. But even so, we do need to at least try to offer some explanation for why responsible government emerged at this time, and why not some other system. And finally, the most important historical question of all, so what? Why does any of this matter? Now, I happen to think these stories are interesting and compelling. I love history for its own sake, coming to grips with a historically foreign way of thinking and living. 
But that's not the only reason we've spent 24 episodes talking about the 1830s and 1840s. There is also the fact that the stories of the rebellions and responsible government mattered then and now. The political system that won out at the end of the 1840s is, by and large, the same political system still used in Canada today. And that is, I'm going to suggest, rather significant. Okay, so let's start with the what of what just happened. Essentially, the victory of responsible government meant that the possible future feared by a slew of various aristocratic governors for decades, that possible future where they were turned into non-entities and most power shifted down to the local executive, well, that future came to pass. It didn't happen overnight. In fact, over the next several decades, various lieutenant governors and governors general would continue to wield what Elgin called a moral influence on domestic matters. On some issues for a short time on policy toward indigenous peoples until 1860, for example, and then much longer on questions of foreign policy and international trade, the British government wielded a great deal of power over Canadian interests, and so the governors remained important. Yet, on issue after issue in the 1850s and beyond, the real power of government in British North America descended to Canadians, to the assembly, but really to the executive, and the figure who led the cabinet and who was coming to be seen as the, the primary minister, the prime minister. Now, even before the late 1840s, even before responsible government, the British policy had been for the appointed governor to attempt to govern in accordance with what the colonial public wanted. This meant that even before the official concession to responsible government, local assemblies had already wielded a great deal of influence. When you read some historical accounts of this era, it's easy to come away with the idea that British North Americans were living under an authoritarian style of government like Mao's China or Putin's Russia. This clearly wasn't the case. Even if, in comparison to our current standards, the idea of what liberties British North Americans enjoyed were limited. And even if British North Americans didn't share 21st century egalitarian ideas of human rights. Yet, in its own era, British North Americans lived under one of the most liberal regimes in the world. there had still been real limits to authority and to local popular will, and British governors had felt it was their duty to make decisions over which local notables could sit on the executive and on the legislative councils. They still took it upon themselves to speak for the broader conception of the public. The victory of responsible government radically changed that. Gone were the days when a Sir Francis Bond head could come in and act essentially as his own Prime Minister and rally loyalists around him. And gone certainly were the days of earlier governors who had been even more presumptuous in asserting their authority, especially in what had been Lower Canada. From this point onward, appointments to the executive for those who sat as advisors to the governor, Her Majesty's government, would still officially come from the governor themselves as indeed they still are today. But this was largely a formality. The governor chose as advisors, as ministers, 
those who wielded support amongst the people at large. And this was decided by, was based upon which party controlled a majority in, or the, the confidence of, the assembly. All of this makes the gradual winning out of responsible government the essential story in the origins of Canadian democracy, the foundation of our political institutions. And I'm going out on a limb to suggest that every Canadian needs to know it. They need to know this story. This is a foundational story. Yet, it's a foundational story with a difference. Unlike every other country in the Americas, Canada's founding story is not one of revolution, but of loyalty. And this confuses a lot of people. Responsible government gave to British North Americans local autonomy. It was a victory for local democracy. But Joseph Howe and Robert Baldwin and Louis Lafontaine were not Republicans. They didn't want to separate from Britain. In fact, they consistently argued that responsible government would make British North Americans even more loyal. It would grant to British North Americans the kind of political system and political liberties already enjoyed in the homeland. In fact, in reality, it did more than this because the property qualifications about who could vote actually opened up voting rights to many more people living in British North America than in Britain itself. And over the next several decades, these qualifications would be opened up even further. But the point remains that the democratic reformers of the Canadas who succeeded in the 1840s were loyalists. They wanted reform, not revolution. The rebellions of the 1830s represented the defeat of the Republican revolutionary option. Not that Republicanism entirely disappeared. In fact, many would continue to be inspired by the vote for everything including the dog catcher model of government of the United States. And as we saw, even disaffected Tories wanted to be annexed to the United States in 1849. And in the 1850s, the Canadas would institute an elective upper house. But the winning side in the 1840s, the side which solidified Canada's founding political culture, chose a reform of continuity. They chose to adopt the British-style Westminster system and to apply it to British North America. This meant that Canada's early democratic founding ended up not breaking with its colonial past. With responsible government, Canada opted to continue in its connection to a history of parliamentary government whose roots went all the way back to the Middle Ages, to the Magna Carta of 1215, which had limited royal authority, to the medieval founding of the House of Commons in the 1380s, to the glorious revolution of 1688 and the struggles for parliamentary supremacy. In the 19th century, the style of history which rapturously told of the creation of these political institutions was described and often dismissed as Whig history. Yet, for all its oversimplification, this Whig history of parliamentary institutions reflected a kind of truth, a legacy of continuity that people in the 19th century created and celebrated. And British North Americans embraced this tradition. In other words, what makes Canada's story of democratic origins different from other countries in the Americas is that Canada chose to retain its colonial links, to maintain the importance of this earlier history. 
And so when I teach, for example, about Canada's political system in my own university courses, I always include a lecture that is essentially about this British constitutional history. And I title the lecture, Why Some British History Is Also Canadian History. Because it is. Okay, so far we've said that the victory of responsible government was one, a story of democratic local autonomy, but also two, one rooted in British loyalism. The other key element of responsible government is the fact that it was party government. The whole system depended, and still depends, maybe it's too much you might say, on having a coalition of interests in a party that can agree to work together and support a particular government. Responsible government is party government. All through the 1840s, governors across British North America bent over backwards to offer positions on their executives to reformers. But the governors kept insisting on offering only some positions, not all. They asserted that government and the crown should represent the interests of all subjects. It wasn't fair to invite into the government only those who belonged to any one faction. And the use of the word faction here conveyed the derogatory meanings attached to the idea of political parties at the time. And yet, all through the 1840s, these older ideas of parties as factions were coming under assault. As reformers like Howe in Nova Scotia refused to sit on the executive with Tories, factions became more and more solid. While the idea of the self-sustaining independent legislator would continue to be held in high esteem, the naturalness of parties themselves came more and more to be accepted, and this is what made responsible government work. Parties wanted to control government and they wanted to control patronage. They wanted to bestow the benefits of governing on their own supporters. Now, this came in more and less crass varieties, from those who just wanted to cement ties and loyalty to sustain power, to those who made public interested statements about the need for state resources to be shared more equally. And it was impossible or almost impossible to dif differentiate between the high-minded and the self-serving. Patronage and party politics became a way for the system to work. As I said, responsible government was party government. Okay, if that's what responsible government was, why did it emerge at the end of the 1840s? As I mentioned earlier, you should always be skeptical when a historian explains why something happened. We aren't scientists. But with that caveat, here's my answer, and it comes in three parts. First, responsible government won out by the end of the 1840s because the British authorities changed their minds. They decided they could live with it. It's not a glorious answer. If you're a Canadian nationalist and what you want is a story of purely Canadian democratic arguments, then you won't like this one. But it also just happens to be a very convincing explanation. By the end of the 1840s, British elites had come to think that they could probably live with British North American colonies that largely decided their own domestic affairs. Questions of trade and military entanglements would continue to be the purview of the imperial government, 
but on domestic issues, the Brits were convinced that they probably had more to gain than to lose by letting people like Joseph Howe run colonial affairs with only minimal influence by British appointed governors. Why did they come to think like this? Well, partly this is because of the growth of liberal reform movements in Britain itself, whose own parliamentary system was becoming ever more slowly, more open and democratic. That's part of the story, but only a small part. Perhaps even more so, the British changed their minds out of self-interest. The growth of a free trade mindset made the colonies less significant to the whole imperial economy. The end of the Corn Laws and the Navigation Acts and other free trade innovations of the 1840s meant that a number of British statesmen felt that they no longer needed to cling so tenaciously to an old mercantilist idea of empire which contained economic growth within the empire itself. And if you didn't need the colonies economically, then the need for political control was also dramatically less significant. There was also the matter of cost. Colonies were expensive, especially militarily. Thousands of British troops manned garrisons across the colonies. In some areas, it was the money brought in from the garrison which kept the local economy afloat. But if you gave the colonies responsible government, then it would be much easier to ask them to pay for their own defense. Now, I might be wrong about this term because in the time of COVID, I can't access all of the physical books in my office or the library, but I think it was the historian Ramsey Cook who once called the whole colony to nation version of Canadian history nothing more than fighting paper tigers. That is, he was poking fun at the idea that the British were in any way holding back Canadian autonomy, and that those local politicians who pushed for more independence often found themselves pushing against an open door. The paper tiger's argument, and I apologize if I'm misattributing it to, uh, to Ramsey Cook, but this argument is, I think, a bit too strong. But there is, nonetheless, a lot to the idea that when it mattered, the reason British North Americans earned more local autonomy is because the British were absolutely fine with letting them have it. Second, though, in the answer of why responsible government, is an answer which qualifies my first point. The British were amenable to giving way to local reformers on responsible government, I suggest, because the rebellions of 1837 and 1838 had been defeated. In other words, the rebellions mattered, but not, as some historians would argue, for their democratic legacy and their republican ideals, but precisely because these ideals had been suppressed, both by the British and by many other local British North Americans. It's hard to imagine a British cabinet giving way to demands from Louis-Joseph Papineau or William Lyme Mackenzie if they had asked for responsible government in the separate colonies of Lower Canada and Upper Canada. London would not have believed the professions of loyalty that these men would have needed to mouth. But precisely because these men had instigated political movements for revolution that failed, precisely because in that failure the two Canadas had been united into a single colony that was, to the British, much safer, this made the demands for responsible government ultimately safer too. The United Province restrained the power of French Catholic Lower Canadians, tying them to coalitions with other British Canadians, and limiting their numerical power in the new United Assembly. 
As calls for responsible government became more insistent over the course of the 1840s, the position to give way, to concede to responsible government, seemed less risky. Papineau may have returned, but he was partly discredited. William Lyon Mackenzie didn't even return until the Rebellion Losses Bill controversy was underway and after responsible government had been allowed. The kind of political figures who rose to prominence in the 1840s spoke a different language, one of British parliamentary supremacy. They couched their arguments in the language of loyalty and looked back to British history for the origins of their political arguments. And what's more, they did so in a united province where each of the Canadas had equal representation in the assembly. The time when a Papineau could entirely dominate the assembly was gone. Lafontaine needed to win over at least a sufficient proportion of upper Canadians in order to form a responsible government. And even if Baldwin seemed to some like an ultra, like too much of a reformer, he was no William Lyon Mackenzie. In other words, this is why I'm so often skeptical of historians who talk about responsible government as being the legacy of the rebellions, as if this is what William Lyon Mackenzie had in mind all along. This gets it backwards. The failure of the rebellions made the Canadas safe for responsible government. It contributed to the growing influence of moderate political figures who wanted more local autonomy, but within, not outside, the British Empire. Okay, third and finally. I'm also convinced by a more general argument about a change in political culture which occurred in the first half of the 19th century. Now, I haven't touched on this question of political culture directly in the episodes, but this idea nonetheless lies behind much of what I've said. And this is the growing faith in the idea that the public itself ought to be consulted and to take part in rational discussion of politics that the people should debate political issues at public meetings and in newspapers, and then select their representatives who would again rationally discuss these issues in the assembly. All of this, it became increasingly common to argue, should form the basis of politics. The key work on this uh, in Canada is by a great historian, Jeffrey McNairn from Queen's University. And he makes a compelling argument that we really need to see the whole debate around responsible government within this much larger and more general shift, which was coming to see the public at large and deliberate discussion amongst the larger public as the basis for legitimate public policy. Now, of course, none of this was taken for granted or simple. As we've seen, both reformers and especially Tories continuously and frequently turned to violence and to the liquored up mob of political supporters when it suited their interests. Heated exchanges on the assembly floor could lead to accusations of disloyalty and a challenge to pistols at dawn. But over the course of the 1830s, and especially the 1840s, the idea of informed public opinion and public legitimacy came to hold more and more power. There were many disagreements about who could be rational, with all the usual kinds of racial and sexual assumptions by some about who couldn't be rational. But the idea of the public sphere of politics gained legitimacy. And this change in political culture was, if you'll excuse my metaphor, the warm ocean within which the bacteria of responsible government grew. Okay, so there it is. My three-part answer to the why of responsible government. It came at the end of the 1840s because the British decided it should. 
because the failure of the rebellions, the creation of the United Province, and the very loyal nature of the idea of responsible government itself made it a safe reform. And finally, because of the growing legitimacy of the very notion of public opinion and the public sphere, of deliberative democracy itself. But you might be asking, so what? Does any of this matter? Good question. If we just go by what professional historians have been writing about for the past several generations, then you'd be tempted to answer, no, it really doesn't matter. Over the last several decades, and by some accounts even longer, professional historians like myself just haven't been especially interested in the story of responsible government. There are a whole lot of reasons for this, but I've, I've promised myself that I'm not going to turn this podcast into a he said, she said version of debates between historians X and Y. This is the kind of thing that just gives academics a bad name. I'm more than happy to gossip over a beer with any listener who comes to Peterborough and wants to talk historiography. But barring that, I'm just going to make this general point that contemporary historians, with a few glorious exceptions, are more than a little skeptical of the importance of responsible government as part of what some more broadly might dismissively label as bourgeois democracy. Suffice to say, I'm not in that camp. I don't take liberal democracy for granted, and I don't think you should either. And I feel we owe it to ourselves to earnestly understand the origins and nature of our political institutions without resorting to overly easy contemporary cynicism and dismissal of almost everyone in the past as somehow inferior or impure. In some sense, that's why I've created this podcast. So, with that little preemptive strike out of the way, here is Dummett's answer for why any of this matters. The first reason, and perhaps the only reason you should need if you are a Canadian, is because it's not, I repeat, not an American story. And I don't say this out of knee-jerk anti-Americanism. I say this because we live in a country inundated with, and let's admit it, fascinated by, news about and stories about our American neighbor. Canadians might just be more interested in American politics than are many Americans themselves. Certainly, many of us are a lot more interested in American than Canadian politics. There's the, the money, the glamour, the chaos, and of course, the power. In Canada, well, there's Ottawa and the Rideau Canal, so Merry Christmas. But the fact is that this American obsession also tends to blend into our understanding of politics and political institutions in ways that can lead us to fundamentally misunderstand our reality. We do not have a system of separation of powers, of checks and balances. We do not have a presidential system. Our head of state really still is the queen. This matters because the nature of how politics works, how power works, how democracy and even more so accountability works, is different in a Westminster-style parliamentary democracy than in the American Republican system. Especially at moments where no single party has a majority in Parliament, which is the case when I'm recording this episode now, though maybe not when you're listening to it, depending on whenever that is. At these moments, we need to understand that the true source of authority in our political system is our own current assembly, our House of Commons. Whoever is Prime Minister in a minority parliament, 
whichever party says it is in power, is really only in power so long as Parliament has confidence in them. If Parliament takes away this confidence, then bye-bye Prime Minister. All of this makes sense if we can think of a relatively recent example of what can go wrong. And for that, we have, case in point, constitutional crisis of 2008. Back in 2008, we had a situation where a coalition of parties in the House of Commons announced to the public that they didn't have confidence in the then current Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. There had only recently been an election. Harper and the Conservatives had won the most seats in the House of Commons, but not an overall majority. After the election and after the speech from the throne, three opposition parties came together and said that they didn't like the plan put forward by the current government. They sat together at a table in front of a bunch of television cameras and held up a piece of paper that was an agreement between them to work together and form their own coalition government. And what did the Prime Minister do? He freaked out. He claimed that the whole process was illegitimate and unconstitutional. It was, he said, a power grab. And then he went and asked the Governor-General to prorogue Parliament. In other words, faced with the prospect of a no-confidence vote, the Prime Minister did whatever he could to avoid letting Parliament meet, to avoid facing the people's representatives. The Governor-General, probably thinking, what the hell, I thought my job was just to look nice and give out awards, just went along with the Prime Minister and prorogued Parliament. After all, what would Harper have said, what would his supporters have said if the Governor-General, an appointee, had gone against the wishes of the elected Prime Minister? Safest for her just to agree. The problem was that Harper was wrong. It was entirely within the realm of what our system can do to have groups of MPs in the House of Commons come together and say, you know what? I don't like this guy, Harper. Let's form another government with someone else at the helm. If the sum total of those members' votes in Parliament adds up to a majority, then they can do this. The members of Parliament are the representatives that Canadians elected. Holding the government to account is exactly what they are there for, to give and to remove their confidence in any one government and to give it to someone else in whom they do have confidence. Now, in the 2008 case, the MPs who wanted to form an alternate coalition were probably more than a little stupid about the kind of coalition they were trying to create. They depended on the votes of members of the Bloc Québécois. That is, a party whose main reason to exist is to break up the very country in whose parliament they sit. And if you think that's odd, then you're not alone. So in other words, the opposition MPs' plans were entirely constitutional but they may have been a little politically naive. But the Governor-General allowed Parliament to prorogue and the Conservatives went on a campaign-style media onslaught, claiming that the whole thing was some kind of coup d'etat. While Parliament was prorogued, the Liberals decided in a pretty chaotic process to choose a new leader and that new, new leader said, no, let's not do this coalition thing. Public opinion polls showed that Canadians were not particularly keen on the idea of the coalition government. But the problem with this was, the public opinion polls were drawn from a public which had a horrifically deficient understanding of our parliamentary system. And they came to it in the midst of a whole lot of nonsense claims from Harper and his supporters who claimed that the coalition move was illegitimate. 
but we ought to know from the lessons of responsible government that we've just been retelling in this podcast that the coalition idea was legitimate. Parliament has the final say. The executive, the cabinet, the prime minister, these are people whom Parliament says they have confidence in. That was the main issue at stake in the fight over responsible government. So, in the 2008 case, the failure to really understand the nature of sovereignty and popular will, the failure of Canadians to have the story of responsible government simply in our heads at all times, taught to us in school year after year, this failure meant that the will of the people's representatives was thwarted. This was wholly undemocratic and anti-constitutional controversy and it's not clear to me how many people then or since fully understand what was at stake. So yes, responsible government, the victory of Baldwin and Lafontaine matters. In 1849 with the Rebellion Losses Bill, responsible government meant that the government can do what it wanted even though it was controversial. And in 2008, even though the coalition idea was also controversial, the members of Parliament ought to have been able to do what they wanted. They were the ones who represented the majority of Canadians, and yet they didn't get what they wanted. It was the Rebellion Losses Bill all over again, except this time the party against responsible government won. And why does this matter? Because a failure to understand this, a failure to understand responsible government, means that we open up ourselves to possible future abuses of power again. Okay, if this all seems a, a bit too contemporary, interesting, but not historical, let me also get back to the past and talk about the significance of responsible government in its own day and its legacy in the following decades. Though even here, what I'm going to say continues to matter today too, I would suggest. The responsible government story matters because it also helps us to understand what is going to happen in the 1860s when various colonies of British North America come together to create the Dominion of Canada. This is the story of Confederation that we're going to cover in Season 2, and it is, in its own right, a fascinating and complicated story. But one of the complaints that people often make about Confederation, about Canada's founding, is that it isn't dramatic. It wasn't based on grand principles and democratic aspirations. The Americans have that stirring declaration of independence with its bold, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can you not love this? It's inspirational. But Canada, what does it have? Well, we have uh, peace, order, and good government, and sections 91 and 92 outlining divisions of powers between the feds and the provinces. Pretty boring, right? This is all, many have said, just pragmatic stuff. Get it done, let's make a deal. Yet, this story misses the point that Confederation is only part of the story of Canadian origins. Here, I side with the great popular historian Christopher Moore, who argues that the reason the British North American Act could seem so boring, could in many ways be so boring, is because the stirring foundational moments of British North American democracy had already happened, and they happened in the late 1840s with responsible government. Now, 
The responsible government story didn't end up in revolution, quite the opposite. And so if you're looking for a blood and guts origin story, if that's the only thing that is going to make you happy, then you're right, Canada doesn't have it. But if what you want is a moving story of democratic origins, of the founding of our political institutions, which gave British North Americans control over their own destiny, then this is it. Of course, there are omissions. Not everyone could vote. And there were, to our minds, pretty disgusting assumptions based on race and sex about who could and who could not be a responsible subject and political actor. But this is the case with every single country in the world. If you're looking for purity, don't look to the past. In fact, don't look to human nature either, for that matter. Yet, it mattered that the people who gathered in the 1860s to create the country of Canada had all been around to witness the victory of responsible government. They came into their own in a political system rooted in the traditions of the British Westminster system. And they, by and large, liked what they saw. This, they assumed, and sometimes boldly asserted, was how they would govern themselves. So when it came to writing up a British North America Act to join the colonies together, they didn't have to debate first principles. Those had already been decided, and decided in blood and fire, on the streets of Montreal in 1849. Okay, that's it. I could go on. I could talk about how responsible government is linked to the kinds of party system we find in Canada, the big, big tent brokerage parties, and probably a lot of other matters as well. But you get the point. We all ought to know the story of the rebellions and responsible government. It matters. This is it. The end of season one. I really hope you've enjoyed it all. I've enjoyed creating it immensely. Uh, as a text, there's this thing that's written out. The whole season adds up to more than 500 pages and all written in what for me was record time. Uh, and somehow, looking forward, I now need to do the same time for season two. And when is the next season, you ask? Well, good question. The plan, so far, is to run on the same schedule as this season, starting in January of 2021 and running through to the end of June in another 24 episodes, all on Confederation. But I do have to get to work uh, to keep reading and get writing and to do all that in the chaotic uncertainty uh, where I'll be teaching online in a time of possible pandemic. So we will see. Maybe the good news is that season one of the podcast, what you've just listened to, is becoming a course at Trent University where I teach. So if you're interested, uh, you can take the whole podcast as a university credit. It ain't cheap, and I'm very, very sorry for this, but it will be a whole course uh, complemented with some great readings from the era. Students will get to read Joseph Howe's uh, Letters to Lord John Russell and William Lyon Mackenzie's Stirring Writing. Heck, they'll even get to read the 92 resolutions and see if they agree with my take that they read like a kind of passive-aggressive breakup letter. Like always, please leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Tell a friend about the podcast. Uh, I'll be gone for a while, but the podcast is there, ready to be heard by anyone. Until next season, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. And next season, we'll go from the all that to 1867 itself. <laughs> <laughs>